I was an officer for a very brief period of time. Um, and I don't think I've ever, in any other line of work, I don't think I've ever quite felt so a part of like one unit. Um, and yet at the department, so separate from everyone. When I was at the department, there would be officers who'd walk down the hallway and they wouldn't even look at me. They wouldn't acknowledge my existence. They wouldn't respond when I said hello because I was new. And I get that because inexperience in this line of work could be the difference between life and death in the field. So I understood I needed to earn my place there. Um, and so, yeah, I felt separate. But when I left the department, when I was out in the field doing my job, um, I knew that that same officer who ignored me in the hallway would be there in half a second. He'd be listening to his radio, listening to my tone of voice as I called in a domestic call um, to see if, if I was stressed or needed uh, assistance. Um, they'd circle the block. You'd have officers on duty, off duty, this town, that town, uh, retired, not retired. They'd all be listening and they'd be there if, if an officer went down or was hurt. So it was this really cool, um, really cool thing between feeling like you're so part of one unit, um, one family, and yet, uh, within the department, so separate. Yeah. Never felt anything like it. During one of my early years of pastoral ministry, a mother came up to me in the church lobby and she said, I just don't find community in this church. She found me in the lobby after service uh, because I had invited her two teenage kids uh, to join us for a fall retreat. And she found me and she wanted me to know that her kids wouldn't be going to that and that I could stop inviting them to these, these things that I keep inviting them to. And then she said, can I be honest with you? Oh, man. When people say that to you, can I be honest with you? Oh, you, you, you know, it's a rhetorical question, yes. Um, but it's also like a forecast of bad news that is coming your way, right? Can I be honest with you? Of course, I said yes. She said, you know, the, the truth is we find better community on our travel soccer team than we do here at, at our church. And it surprised me a little bit because they were really dedicated church people. They had served in the church, her and her husband had served in the church in various ways throughout the past. Uh, they had been, both, both the parents had been raised in faith and their kids were part of the church since a very early age. And they had really great teenage kids. They were academically driven, they were fun, they were really social, and they were also really good at soccer. But she continued on, she, she told me, on our travel soccer team, we hang out together, uh, obviously, we travel together, we spend a lot of time with each other, we watch out for each other's kids, uh, we share with together, and, and we, we, like we, we share, we talk about real life together. And she put this extra emphasis on real life, and it felt like a little bit of a jab. I knew it wasn't going to do any good in you know, debating with her or challenging, with, challenging her. I, I respected their decision. Um, and so I said, I, I hope you have a great season. Um, thank you for sharing this with me, and I hope our paths cross again. And I was as sincere as I could be about that, and I knew I'd still see them on Sundays, but now we had a different understanding moving forward. I thought a lot about that. It was, again, one of my first years of pastoral ministry, and one of the things that kept coming back to mind was, like, why do they prefer that version of community than maybe the version of community that the church is offering? Why would they rather be there than here? especially those who had been raised in the church. 
And I know a good bit about like, you know, the back rooms of the church and, and that underbelly of church life. So I, I, I get that. But I was surprised of how, how quickly they had separated themselves from that. And of course, I, I, I wonder a lot about that now because I have two kids in travel soccer team. And there's some really wonderful people on those sidelines. And I think about that quite a bit. We'll come back to this in, in a little bit. But this year here at Grace, we are talking about belonging. And so if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Brian kick off our, our series called True Belonging. And we hope, we hope very sincerely that you find this community as a place where you can connect naturally to, uh, where this is a place that you want to be a part of, uh, where there's people that you find like natural affinity with and, and as well, and that you feel that this is a safe place to be real and to be authentic and, and to be yourself. So we hope that. And we hope that you grow in your faith as, a pro- as part of that process. Throughout our series, we're going to be focusing on the text from Romans chapter 12 to Romans 16 and other relevant scripture passages. And tonight, we just want to look at one verse, Romans 12, chapter 1, and it's a really, really good verse. So we're going to put it on the screen for you. I, I hope it's familiar to many of you. And if it's new to you, man, I, I hope that you can kind of just like adopt this into your memory. And it reads, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Romans 12.1. If you've been around the church for a while, you probably have heard this sermon uh, or this passage preached. It is a favorite among pastors. I, 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 I love this passage. But as much as I love this passage, I, I, also, I also feel that we, we kind of miss it sometimes, too. That we miss its beauty, that we miss its power. This, some of these religious words, you know, like living sacrifice, have a tendency to kind of like bounce off of us or, or, or wash over us. It kind of gets lost sometimes in, in all the, the metaphor. Sometimes it feels like it's a little overly dramatic in some religious way. And so tonight, I, I want us to find a new and deeper appreciation of what it really means to be a living sacrifice. Now, I know that term, living sacrifice, is not really one of those terms that like, like just sweeps you off your feet. Did you say living sacrifice? Oh my goodness, tell me more. Like, I know that. Oh, sacrifice? What else do you want from me now? Like, that, that's kind of what it usually brings to mind. And what is exactly a living sacrifice? Does, does Jesus want us to be like Christian zombies? Like, like we're, we're sort of alive, but we're sort of dead too? Does Jesus want an army or a church full of zombies? Is that what the show The Walking Dead is about? Is it like a vision for the church? Have you seen the show The Walking Dead? I haven't, but I've seen enough commercials. Um, I, I'm pretty sure it's a show about Christians who find an island full of zombies and they want to proselytize them. Is that, is that it? Is, is, that, is, that, is that the show? Or, or, or do they want to set up an amusement park? Is, is that or is like a same premise of Jurassic Park, maybe? But is that the goal of religion? I mean, don't we hear that quite a bit, that people in the church are just really a bunch of religious zombies? I have this atheist friend who, who and, I, and I mean that sincerely, he is a dear, dear friend of mine. And he'll say to me regularly when we sit down over coffee or, or when we go out, he'll say something to the effect of, the church is filled with a bunch of blind and naive people. They're mindless zombies for Jesus. And he usually says in the beginning, no offense. <laughs> and then afterwards, and I don't mean you. Do you have a friend like that? 
Like, 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 like they say these things, and, and you're like, wow. Like, I know you said no offense, but it, it, still, it still stings because you don't know the people that I know. Zombies? I don't think so. The last time we had this conversation, I, I, I said to him, um, have you seen what people look like after they binge watch a TV show for four hours? They don't look like that at the end of church, by the way. After they binge watch a show, or, or have you seen people at live sporting events? Like, like when, when they're like salivating at the mouth, trying to, you know, wish demise on the opponents and the opponent's fans. Like, like there, there's, there's something else going on there. I, I don't think the zombie issue is exclusively a religious one. Tonight, I want to tell you that being a living za- uh, sacrifice has nothing to do with being a mindless zombie type of person. Instead, being a living sacrifice, see it as a beautiful expression of love, of joy, one of real life, the life that the Lord is inviting you to. But before we get into that part, I, I want us to understand the, the context of, of Romans 12 a little bit. You know, these words, if we can put them back on the screen, um, it says, it began with, I urge you, and it had this, this clause, brothers and sisters, and, and that was very intentional by Paul, because he, he wants everyone, regardless of background, uh, uh, regardless of sex or societal class, to be included in this. And, and he, he wants to urge people to consider what he's, he wants to urge people to become a living sacrifice. It's not a soft ask. I feel like when I give announcements, like I'm trying to give a soft ask. Like, this is gonna be really good for you. I hope you stick around for pizza. It's gonna be really good. And, and some of these events are gonna be good. And you know, if, if you're up for it, we don't wanna pressure. Like, I, I feel like that's, that's what I do when we give announcements. This, what Paul is doing, the urging, is not a soft ask. I mean, he, he's practically pounding the table that he's writing on. I urge you, don't miss this. Don't make the mistake of doing the opposite of this. Instead, actually do this. I urge you, he's saying. Have you ever tried to convince someone to do something, but you know that you can't control them? And you don't want to control them, of course, because that, be, that would be manipulation. So what, what else you got? You urge them. I, I hope you see how good this is going to be for you in your life. I urge you. Paul's urging. Well, here in our teaching series, we're, we've jumped right into the middle of the story, 12 chapters in. I mean, it's not that the other 11 chapters are bad. It's just that the 12 through 16 are very practical applications of what the, the first 11 are doing. And I want to give you a, a bit of a, a quick crash course on, on Romans, because the first 11 chapters, I mean, they're very theologically dense, and they're very thorough, and they're a bit intense. Commentators have explained the first 11 chapters of Romans to be like creed. This is the creed. And then the second, uh, the, the second half, the, the last five chapters, uh, to be about conduct. So think of it as creed and conduct. And the crash course is, you know, Romans is like the big time, okay? This is like writing to the New York Times, okay? Paul's writing to the Romans. This is like the Roman Empire this is like where the distribution is, and it's a largely a Gentile audience, meaning people who don't know anything about Judaism, people who don't really understand this, this Old Testament type of a thing, and people who really don't understand Jesus or maybe having a different starting point of Jesus than perhaps their Jewish counterparts. So it begins with the early chapters of establishing who God is. And God is so amazing and so powerful that all people are invited to know him, and nobody has an excuse to miss out on this. He goes on in the first couple of chapters, there's some commentary on, on how ancient society has chosen its own self-interests. And some have sunk so low in depravity 
there is laments for the brokenness in the individual and also in the public soul. Then he gets to the bad news. As if that wasn't a tough enough start, he says, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And he continues on in that vein. He says, and for the wages of sin is death, a couple chapters later. And then if I can paraphrase a little bit of chapter 7, um, it, it, uh, we'll put the whole thing up. But he, here's one of my favorite parts of the book, because he, he's in first person here. He's, he's not just pointing the finger at people. He's saying, this happens to me too. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. And for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my, in my sinful nature. And then it skips on to 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. Now if I want to do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but this sin living in me. And then he's, he, he summarized it all with this last line. So I find this at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. And that right there kind of captures the first seven or eight chapters, seven chapters of that. Now, if you're reading through the book of Romans and you got depressed by this part, I would like to encourage you to read the next chapter. Because the next chapter is like the first really, really good chapter of the book of Romans. Because the chapter seven ends with, but thanks be to God who delivers us through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that becomes the pivot. That becomes like, you know, if you're ever watching like a really, really tough movie, and this is just tough to watch. Oh, man. And then there's like the turning point. Between chapter 7 and 8 in Romans, that's what, that's, what, that's what we get here. Through forgiveness and trusting in Jesus, that is the only way. And then in chapter 8, we're just, Paul describes the church as more than conquerors. Nothing can stop this. And, and what can be more than a conqueror? Paul doesn't even let up to, to, to let us even ask. He says, those who trust in Jesus can't be stopped. And he finishes that chapter with these beautiful words, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor the future, nor principalities, nor height or depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in, our Christ, which is in Jesus. I mean, Paul is showing his, his, his readers that once you trust in Jesus, everything changes. And you are more than conquerors in that way. Unfortunately, after chapter 8, he gets into a little bit more history of, of, of how Israel has messed up this beautiful truth. And he gives them a little bit of this. And he does this because by the time we get to chapter 12, he's saying, I don't want you to fall into the same trap as people before you have fallen. And so therefore, here we are back in chapter 12, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I mean, this, this is a key, key part of the book and why we get so excited to preach about it. Worship. I mean, that's a tricky word too. Worship. I mean, it's so religiously loaded. And I wouldn't blame you if you felt that it was a little archaic. Worship. But Everyone worships in some way or another. Maybe not in the religious way, but everybody worships. If I can give you a practical definition of worship, it would sound like this. Worship is what receives our heart's attention, our mind's focus, 
and what our bodies and lives are dedicated to. Everybody worships. Everybody worships something or someone. Often we assume worship as corporate worship or, or public worship. You know, corporate worship is like what we're doing here tonight, where we, where we gather at a designated time, we, we, we go through, you know, some type of a liturgy, we sing some songs, we spend some time in prayer, we receive the word, and we spend some time with each other. This is the idea of public worship. And there's also personal worship, too, like when we pray privately, when we read scripture alone in, 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 our, in our own personal times. Worship. It's, it is what we center our lives around. It is, how we, it is what we do with our time, how we spend our energy, what we do with our freedom. Worship is about what we dream about. I ask you, what do you dream about? What, what are you pursuing? Those are all things that reveal what we really or who we really worship. Do you remember back in, in the Old Testament, when, back in Exodus 20, when, when God is given the when Yahweh is given Moses the Ten Commandments, the first command is, thou shalt, not have, thou shalt not have any other God before me. And the second is not to make any graven images to worship. But what if I told you that the real problem of ancient Israel wasn't merely that they chased pagan gods whose images that they engraved in wood and metal. What if I told you that the real problem was that since the dawn of civilization, people generally worship themselves? They do all these other things to try to help themselves in, in some way or another. So that maybe the gods, whichever one is paying attention, will, will show favor to them. That's why there's so many gods in the ancient world. There's, there's the god of war, there's the god of success and prosperity, the god of fertility, the god of protection. There's so many gods because if we, hopefully if we pray to one of these gods, they will, they will protect us, they will bless us, they will make our lives better or good. And not much has really changed. A lot of us are often at fault of worshiping ourselves. I mean, we would never say that out loud. I mean, that, that sounds ridiculous. I worship myself. But the way that we spend our time and our actions and our energy, what we dream about, what we pursue, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we would find a little bit of self-worship. Thomas Merton has this really great line. Where he says, instead of worshiping God through his creation, we are always trying to worship ourselves by means of creatures. But to worship our false selves is to worship nothing, and the worship of nothing is hell. And here Paul is trying to spare us from the futility of self-worship. Paul, in many ways, is trying to spare us from hell, often the hell that we have created for ourselves. And so he says the, the way through this is through sacrifice. Sacrifice, as I alluded to earlier. That's one of those words that makes you go, uh-oh. Oh man, worship, sacrifice, these are, these are, this is a tough sell. For the longest time, I didn't understand the concept of sacrifice. I, when, when, when I was, uh, you know, when, when you hear about it in the Bible, you always hear about it in the old ancient sacrificial system. Um, you know, when they, they would sacrifice, you know, a goat, you know, they would go to the temple and, and, and do that. And I didn't really have any connection point to that. Because when I was a little boy, when I did something wrong, my family didn't sacrifice a goat for that right? They told me not to do that. I apologized. I, I tried to change my behavior, and then we moved on. That was, that was kind of like the penalty system. Sometimes I would get grounded. Sometimes the things, something would be taken away from me, but I didn't really have a, 
a way of organizing this, this, this understanding of sacrifice. And then as I got older, I learned the nobler aspects of sacrifice, like, like many of you do. Like the way that we sacrifice our time and our energy for things that are important or for people that are important or, or to achieve something worthwhile, whether that be a grade or, or a talent or a sport or some type of achievement. It could also be that we, that we, we sacrifice our preference or, or our privilege for the sake of another. Parents, of course, sacrifice for their children. Older siblings are expected to sacrifice for their, for their younger siblings. Team sacrifice. And all throughout society and throughout history, brave men and women have sacrificed in one way or another some sense of duty, often uh, for, for lives, uh, often for virtue or for freedom, for the common good of society. Sacrifice. We even have holidays that revolve around the sacrifices of people. It's not a word that we use lightly. And neither does Paul. Let's notice first that the Paul says to present your body as a living sacrifice. To present your body. Now to the Gentile audience first reading this book, the idea of body would have felt a little strange to them. Because the body was very functional. The body was very dirty. The body was, if, if you were to read their minds, be like, you want my body? Do you know what I do with my body? Do you know how dirty my body is? God wants my body? Ew. Ew. My soul, maybe, that part is pure and good, but my body? And Paul intentionally is saying this body, knowing full well how they're going to think of it, because he doesn't want us to compartmentalize any part of our lives away from God. We must worship God fully. And Paul would probably argue that the way that God has intended your body, as, as he explains later in, in other books, that our body is actually a temple. So you may see your body as dirty and as, as, as merely functional, but God sees your body as something pure and holy and, and potentially something incredible, created in his image after all. Present your body as a living sacrifice. And of course, he uses this word living sacrifice because he's operating out of a Jewish rabbi system. Everything in the, in the ancient Old Testament world, when it has sacrifice attached to it, it implies death. We, this is the idea, again, of, of going to the priest and going to the temple and sacrificing something. And here he's switching it up a little bit. This is very exciting to a, 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 20, a first century Jewish rabbi. He added the word living before it. We are to be living sacrifices. This is where the good life is found. This is where confession and forgiveness and repentance and restoration and redemption is found in being a living sacrifice. This is how we get to live in response to the incredible and generous love of God. We offer our bodies in sacrifice. I know it's a tough ask. Paul knows it's a tough ask. You want my life? My whole life? That this is what you want? Tonight I want to ask you, if you're not willing to give your life to God in response to his mercy and to res in response of his love, what is it that you are willing to give him instead? I mean, what would be the alternative offering? What would be something or so, what, what could we give God instead that would be sufficient. I mean, it's, I've thought a lot about that over the years. 
And frankly, I have, I have not found any alternative or any legitimate alternatives. I haven't found any loopholes. I've looked for them. I haven't seen those either. And all I've seen and all I've experienced comes down to this. If we attempt to give anything less than our entire selves to God, not only will our worship feel disconnected, and not only will we feel some type of, of barrier between us and the Lord, but we're also going to feel a gap in our Christian community as well if we don't give ourselves. And the incredible thing is I continue to observe the opposite. What I see also is when we do give our heart to God, when we do give our, our heart, our mind, and strength, when we present ourselves as living sacrifice, this is when we experience the Lord's fullness. This is when we experience the Lord's nearness. We, we, when we experience his joy, his strength, his love even more fuller. And it doesn't mean that our circumstances have magically worked out, but it means that we get to experience the nearness of God. That's what happens when we present ourselves as living sacrifices. The bills might not get paid. The check engine light may still stay on, right? Just because we present ourselves as living sacrifices, those circumstances may not change, but we do get to experience the nearness of God, and hopefully we also get to experience the community of one another. If I can put that verse back on the screen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What is holy and pleasing to God? I mean, holy is this idea of being set apart for something or someone that is exclusively dedicated to God. And we know pleasing is to bring goodness or, or gladness to, to God. You know, we dedicate our lives to the Lord, bringing God goodness. This is, this is part of being a living sacrifice. And, and while this includes showing our gratitude on, on Sunday mornings and here on Sunday nights, uh, it includes you know, these songs that we sing unto God, where we express this, this type of gratitude and this time of prayer. And then, and of course, like we go through this liturgy that we explained earlier. And tonight we're adding pizza to our liturgy, which is a little bit of a strange liturgy. I mean, we're a little bit low church to begin with, but hey, let's just go with it, okay? Let's just, let's just go with it, right? I mean, this is, this is part of, of what we do when we gather, but that's only part of it. I would love to convince you to, to leave this space knowing that worship is not exclusively confined to Sunday night or Sunday morning. Worship is what we do 24-7. We are reflecting some part of our understanding of worship in everything that we say and do and think and pursue. That is worship. It's a, it's a holistic view of seeing life living our lives holy and pleasing to God. So th this is, relates then to how we treat ourselves. This relates then to how we treat others, our neighbors, our loved ones, our enemies. When we show that Christian compassion, that Christian kindness to others, we are in a sense pleasing God in, in that sense. And when we understand worship as directing our love and attention to the Lord, this also is part of our worship. And treating people in, in, in this type of way, that carries often an element of sacrifice, a living one. Many of us are finding ourselves in this very complicated cultural moment. I mean, the political conversations have become so intense these last stretch of years. Society has felt increasingly more complicated. And just about every conversation has gotten dragged into something controversial. 
I mean, it's hard to go anywhere and feel that you can just speak your mind without triggering something divisive. And so we often feel this temptation of just trying to stick to the surface and, and be superficial, right? Can you be outspoken and still be a compassionate and real listener? Can you reflect God's love in a true and, and genuine way? Can you love your ideological enemy? And can you get their story straight before you offer a reply to what they're saying? And can you be patient with them as they butcher your version of the story? Can you be patient with them as it seems that they intentionally misunderstand what you are trying to say? Because if we can do that, that would be part, part of what it means to be holy and pleasing in God's sight, to treat others with this incredible love and respect in this Christian way. It's hard. But I want to encourage you tonight that that is worth doing, that that is truly Christian, that that is very, very Jesus-like. And it's something worth, it is something life-changing, I'll, I'll say. And it's, it is worthwhile, despite how difficult it is. So much can distract us from worship. Public worship, like in this space, I've been looking forward, to, I've been looking for a reason to talk about this in this space for, for quite some time. I, I, I understand when we come into this room how hard it is to keep focus. And like there's so many entry points in this room and there's, there's so much often happening in this room and, and where we sit close together in this room and, and sound bounces really close to us in this room. I understand how hard it is to worship publicly in this space. And, I want, and, and there's, there's no hand slap coming, so I, I would love for all you to turn down any anxiety. Like it's, it's all good here, okay? It's all good. But it is hard to, to worship in, in, in public. I, I, I respect that. There's, there's always an interruption. Um, there, there's, there's, there's always a cell phone buzzing or ringing, and that's okay if it is yours. Do, do your best, but it is okay. We are grateful to have young children in this space. We don't want to be a church that ages out and does not have young children around us, so, so bring them and, and do your best with them. And if you're, if you're sitting around and you see a child that is having a tough time and you happen to have crayons and paper with you, bless them and that family with crayons. And there's also crayons and paper in the back. Help yourself. It is all good here. Let us do our best with that. Because when we, when we, when we let things take us out of the moment, we, we miss the, the, the goodness of worshiping God together. And when you stop coming, you also miss the goodness of worshiping God together. Some of my favorite moments of, of understanding my faith in God has a lot to do with you and other people that I worship with. And I'm not just saying that so you come back. I mean this in a very genuine way. I love watching people worship. Because it's not just watching them worship, it's, it's knowing that God has done something great in their lives and they're here too. And I feel like God has done something great in my life. And I am grateful to be a part of this type of community that says, thank you, God, for blessing with me. Thank you, God, for helping me. And God, I still need you. I still need your strength. I still need your peace. I still need your joy. God, I don't know what I'm going to do about this, but I need you. And I, and I love that we get to do that and confess that and sing about that together and pray for that together. I think of things like in our personal worship. I know how hard it is to, to personally worship, to, to find time to pray, to find time to read the Bible. I don't know about you, but I, I like to read my Bible and pray at night. I find that I'm more focused then, my energy level is at a pretty good spot then. 
And, and I, I like it when everybody kind of goes to bed and I just have some time that I can just kind of just, just have, I, I don't feel a clock ticking on me. And, but sometimes there's dishes in the sink and there's bills that need to be paid. And I, and I think to myself, if I could just wash these dishes and take care of these to-do lists, then I'll be able to concentrate and focus better on what I'm reading. And years ago, I came to this, this realization that like, oh my goodness, my faith is weakening because of dishes in the sink. What am I going to say to God? I wish I would have read the Bible more, but there were dishes in the sink. I mean, surely we, I could have found a more... A, 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 a better solution than that, right? And so I've just had to just be at peace with, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to have some time spending, I'm going to have some, spend some time with the Lord, and the dishes will just be the dishes, and the bills will just be the bills, because what's more important is this time of reading and praying and meditating on Scripture. For those of you who are very achievement-motivated and, like, you feel this responsibility to, like, I have to read one chapter a day in order for it to count, I would love to encourage you to read something good. Read something that you're going to think about. For a few years, I've been, I've been trying to separate my Bible reading and the things that I preach and teach about and the things that are only for me. And so there's this one particular passage that I can't tell you about, otherwise I would ruin the point of this illustration. But there's this one particular passage that I keep thinking about for a really long time. And it, and it drives me a little crazy. And some days it upsets me and some days, it makes me pump my fist and say, yes, if you're a God that understands this, then yes, thank you, God. Find passages in Scripture that, that is going to drive you crazy, that you're going to want to think about throughout the day. Don't let the things that we watch on Netflix, you know, be the only things that preoccupy our minds. Of like, oh, man, how did they do that? I mean, maybe something found in Scripture. Like, how, how is God going to do that? Is this true? I mean, could, could, we, could we fill our minds with something like that? Because that would be good personal worship. That would be a good working out of this idea of being, of being a living sacrifice. But let us be a, a Christ-centered community. When we do this together, we become a Christ-centered community, not just a community of nice people who met in church. And that's one thing that worries me, that we just see ourselves as nice people who met in church who just really like religion and really like these songs and really like pizza after church. Like, let's not be that. Let's be a Christ-centered community. I heard Eugene Peterson talk about worshiping uh, the divine, and, and to summarize a little bit of what he said, he says, there's like three ways that people try to interact with something better, uh, greater than them. There's three ways that people try to interact with something that is incredible or transcendent. And he says, one is by chemically altering their, their state of mind through drugs or alcohol or some type of foreign substance. Two is by the pursuit of pleasure in all its various forms, whether it be sports and recreation or, or other forms of, of physical pleasure or even stimulating our minds through, through media. Third, or three, is the rush that we get from being in crowds. That groupthink, that common cause, that shouting and that celebrating. If you've ever been to a live baseball game or an NFL game, or if you've ever been to like, like a concert and the music just swells and you're just like, oh, this feels so good. I love this feeling. How do I get more of it type of a thing? That's, the, that's, 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 that's part of the, the, the crowd effect. And Peterson says, we've done a lot of talking about the first two. And the third, especially for us church types, can turn into an idol if we're not careful. The crowd. And here, in this church, we have 
a lot of crowds. And you here are, are a crowd of some sorts. And, and I, I never want us to feel objectified. I never want you to feel that you're just a person filling a seat. Like, we are so grateful that you, that you are here, like you as an individual are here. In fact, like when we have like, you know, the, 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 the Sundays that where people are traveling, like those are the Sundays like we as a worship team, you know, we kind of gear up a little bit more for, like for like Labor Day Sunday, knowing that the place is gonna be even, even less full than, than other weeks. Because these are the people who chose to come on this night, and we want to honor them as they honor God. Like those, are, those, those aren't like off Sundays to us. If anything, we, we try to turn it up a little bit. We, we don't want to objectify the crowd. And if I can be really candid here, you know, like, like I, I, I'm on social media, and of course I, I work at one of the largest churches in New England, and here you worship at one of the largest churches in New England, and, and there are all these shots taken at large churches and multi-site churches, and they often compare us to things like McDonald's. Oh, they're just franchising themselves, and they often compare pastors to these greedy corporate types, and, and, and you try not to take things personally, but like, I wish they knew us. I wish they knew us. And I know there's some really bad apples out there. I know that. But I wish they knew us. I, I, this is my third church that, that, I'm, that, that I've, I've served at in my career. I've been, I've been in ministry for 18 years now. And most of the churches I've been a part of have been smaller or, or have been much smaller. Most of the churches have either been small churches or mid-sized churches. The churches I've been I've, I've either working at or just been a part of as part of my upbringing. And... I want to tell you that there are some really amazing small and mid-sized churches. Thank God. There are some really amazing pastors of these churches and church leaders and volunteers all across these churches. Thank God. And, and there are some churches who, I, I don't want to be judgmental, that, but who are not fulfilling the call that God has placed on their, on their congregational life. And there are some individuals who have not been fulfilling the call that God has placed on their lives. And God will judge us all for that. Large, big, small, medium, all of that. And I've come to realize that it's not the size of the ministry, it's not the ministry model, it's not the philosophy of it, it's not even its theological underpinnings. All those are very important, but you can know the Bible really well and still be a terrible person. I mean, just ask Jesus about the Pharisees, right? You can know the Bible really well and still be a terrible person. It's about being a Christ-centered community. That's what really makes a difference. And that's one of my favorite things here about Grace Chapel. And I'm not, I'm not just saying this to say this. Like, like this, is, this is as real as I can be with you. One of, one of my favorite things about Pastor Brian is that he talks a lot about being a Christ-centered community. That, that he, that he and, 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 and all the pastoral staff do this, but, but he, he kind of sets the tone for us on this. That he, that he breaks this this caricature of, of a large church pastor that is only concerned about, about the numbers and about the crowds and about this and about that. Often in our, in our staff meetings, and, and if you heard last week's sermon, it is about keeping Christ at the center of the community. And I love being part of a church that is passionate about that. And we are committed to that. And I'm glad that you're a part of that. But we have to keep Christ at the center of this community and we need each other's help in doing that. But that is key. And when we find ourselves belonging in worship, a Christ-centered worship, we experience nearness to God and community with others. But we can only do this when it's a Christ-centered community. So in closing, if I can work my way back to, 
to that nice lady that I was talking to in the lobby. For years, I, 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 didn't, see her, I didn't see them very often. We would casually see each other. And then one Sunday, I noticed that, they had si- that she had signed up her children for the fall retreat. The same fall retreat that they decided not to attend years before. And so obviously my, my mind was, 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 was captured. And I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to come in too fast. So I kind of just positioned myself in the lobby in, in such a way that hopefully we'd bump into each other. And she, she left the service and she, she, looked, she looked for me and she found me and we started talking. And, and I, I started kind of upbeat. Like, hey, how you doing? It's been a while. Good to see you. Like overly cheerful voice. And her voice was really low and, 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 and tempered. It's like, yeah, honestly, it's, it's been a tough time. Oh, oh, what's going on? Well, you know, I, I, I feel embarrassed. I, I feel like I made a mistake. Um, you know, my, my kids are actually no longer on a travel soccer team. Um, it's kind of a long story, but um, we ended up having some trouble with some of the other kids and some of the coaches. And before I knew it, um, one of my kids was kicked off their team, and then soon after that, the other kid was somehow kicked off their team. Um, and I wasn't sure if it wasn't because they, were they weren't good enough, but they didn't make it um, anymore, and, and, and we're, we're really hurt by that. And what, what's really hurt is that in losing that, we, we have lost our community. The community that we left kind of like this place for. So I kind of feel like I burned my bridges here and I don't have any community left. And my kids still have friends, but this was a tough year for me personally because my, my mother passed away, she said. And I had no idea. But she had shared very candidly, like I didn't have anybody around me. My phone didn't ring very often except for my, for my siblings. No one really knew. There wasn't really many people to tell. We didn't really have friends around us to support us. I realized I didn't have any community and I traded one thing for another and that feels like a mistake. And so she, I, I gave my sympathies, I, I, I did my best to listen and support. I was grateful that she was, you know, in so many words kind of back. But then she said this that, that, I, I will, that, that really just struck me and I've never forgotten. She said, I realized that my community there was performance-based. My community there was performance-based. Depending on how well my kids did in soccer, depending on how, how I behaved as a parent, that's what, that's what my status depended on. And then when, I was off, we, when we were off the team, we weren't allowed back in the community. Community there was conditional. And that's when I started to get Christian community. One of the most special things about us being a Christ-centered community is that we do our best by God's help to reflect his unconditional love to other people. We are people who, who accept the other. We are a, a people who, ex, who, who, who invite others to come back. We, we are a community of prodigal children, sons and daughters. We are a community about forgiveness. We forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. We are a community about reconciliation. We become reconciled to God and we become reconciled to each other. We believe in redemption. We believe in the joy of God, the strength of God, the goodness and the love of God. That is a beautiful community worth belonging to. And we do this with sacrifice. In closing, being a living sacrifice in Christ-centered worship leads us to true belonging with God and with others. 
And friends, I hope you help us build that. I hope that you help us to continue to nurture and, and, and curate that. I hope when new people come into our community that, that they feel this love and this warmth and this goodness because we have been so blessed by God in so many ways. Despite our challenges, despite our hurts and pains, we have been blessed by God in so many ways. And so may we invite others into this Christ-centered community together. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the special and powerful and beautiful community that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, that, that through your Spirit, we can know and receive these things. We ask you, Lord, for your help, that we would apply these truths to our everyday lives, that we'd be able to forgive ourselves when we fail at these things, that we'd be able to forgive each other. We also pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to recognize the, the goodness and the successful moments. Help us, Lord, to, to recognize and be sensitive to, to the moments of others, too. But may we be a healthy Christian community. And may you help us, Lord, as we curate that, as we build that, and as we invite each other into that. Thank you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.